0: we are <clears throat> continuing this morning with looking at the prophecy, the prophetic book of Daniel, and uh, I'm going to be reading Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 18, uh, so if you have your Bibles uh, with you, as always, I would encourage you to, to open them up and, and follow along as it is uh, a somewhat lengthy passage. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, if you check in the seats in front of you, you should find a Bible there and you'll find our passage on pages 746 and 747. Uh, I just want to thank you for last Sunday. Thank you for the wonderful celebration uh, and uh, just uh, I felt uh, obviously so so loved and thank you as well for uh, the cards that you gave and and uh, the hugs and everything else. I'm so grateful that the Lord has given me 10 years here. And uh, so grateful that he's given me uh, 50 years on this earth. One thing you will note is that uh, being 50 now, my eyesight is not as good as it was. And so sometimes, I, see I always forget my reading glasses because I only need them part of the time. Uh, and so sometimes when I'm reading the scripture passage the, the letters are so small, Uh, I'll mess up with the reading, but uh, that isn't because I haven't been reading it all week. It's because it's hard to see sometimes without my reading glasses. I'll have to try to remember to bring them from now on. Uh, Well, again, we are looking at uh, this apocalyptic section of Daniel, and uh, just, you know, as you know, as we've said many times, Daniel uh, has been in Babylon now for most of his life. He was a young man when he was hauled off, probably around 14 years old. Uh, and so you can imagine as a 14-year-old the, the kind of hopes and dreams that you have for the rest of your life. And, and Daniel's life was no doubt completely rerouted uh, as he was sent away into exile, carried off by King Nebuchadnezzar. And by this time, by our passage today, he's around 80 years old. So he has spent most of his life now living in the pagan land of Babylon. And uh, we have seen in the book of Daniel uh, great actions by godly men, including Daniel. We've seen great visions that Daniel has been given. And this morning, we're going to look at a great prayer, a great prayer that Daniel offered up. It's not only is it a great prayer period, but it's it's one of the great prayers, I think, that you'll find in the entire Bible. And so... uh, I will begin uh, by reading Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. "'turning aside from your commandments and rules. "'We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, "'who spoke in your name to our kings, "'our princes, and our fathers, "'and to all the people of the land. "'To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, "'but to us open shame. "'As at this day, to the men of Judah, "'to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, "'those who are near and those who are far away, "'in all the lands.'" to which you have driven them because of the, mo- of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O oh Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem." As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, As at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your temple have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Well, again, here we have one of the great prayers in the whole Bible, and it is a model prayer for us. It's a model prayer, not only of repentance for when we come before God, but I think it's a, it's a model of repentance for when we come to each other. And ask for forgiveness for sins against one another. We notice, first of all, when we look at verses one and two, that Daniel's prayer is prompted. It's prompted not only by his circumstances, which I think prompts most of our prayers. When we pray, I think, and again, prayer is for most of us, I think, a a somewhat difficult thing. Some of you, I know, go straight to prayer. Some of you are great prayer warriors, but for a lot of us, when you think about it, even Jesus's own apostles, after following him and listening to him, and when when they asked him to teach them something, it was how to pray. Uh, So a lot of times when we do pray, I think it's prompted by circumstances, oftentimes difficult circumstances. Daniel has gone through a lot of difficult circumstances, but notice that it's not only his prayer is not so much prompted by his present circumstances, but, but more importantly, by God's word. It is God's word that prompts this prayer. Daniel's prayer occurs, if we look at his circumstances, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. Now, for those of you, like me, who are kind of history buffs, who, who want to figure out all of these historical people and names and dates in Scripture... We don't know exactly who Darius is. There are two, uh, two uh, people that it could be. One possibility is that Darius is Cyrus. Cyrus is the Persian king that uh, all of history knows, that, who is named in, in the book of Isaiah as God's instrument to bring judgment on Jerusalem or on Babylon, I should say. Cyrus could be this Darius. Darius, if that's the case, is a throne name, a a throne name like Pharaoh or like Caesar. There were many Pharaohs, there were many Caesars, but they all were given that title. So Darius could be a title for Cyrus. And we see this in Daniel chapter 6. At the end of Daniel chapter six, it says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. But that word and there could be translated, comma, that is Cyrus the Persian. In other words, it could be that scripture's telling us Darius and Cyrus are the same guy. It could also be though that Darius is a puppet king a local ruler that Cyrus has put in charge of that area. And we know from history that that is indeed uh, what happened. Uh, Cyrus put a man there in charge of that area, and Darius then would have been his throne name. In other words, he's being called Darius or ruler. Uh, Now, if we look at verse 1 here, it says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the, Chal- uh, of the Chaldeans. That means the Babylonians. So if we, if we look at that phrase, who was made king, to me, that favors the second option. I, I'm not going you know, go to my, go to the wall for that. It could very well be Cyrus. Uh, and if it is Cyrus, then we know that it's God who made him king. Uh, That's what Daniel would be referring to, and God being sovereign and placing kings and kingdoms is obviously a great theme throughout the book of Daniel. If, however, it's this local puppet king, then it would not only be God placing him there, obviously, behind all things, but it would have been Cyrus who places this local king there. Now, the most important thing is when this prayer occurs. It's not so much who's over it, although that tells us when it is. It says that it happened in his first year. Uh, Cyrus put the sky in place in his first year. It would have been his first year, which would have been the year 539 BC. That was the year that Babylon was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. We see this Again, in Daniel chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Remember those visions that Nebuchadnezzar had about the four kingdoms, the vision that Daniel had about the four kingdoms. Babylon was the first kingdom, and after that comes another kingdom that destroys Babylon and takes over. That's the Medo-Persian kingdom. And that's what Daniel foresaw, that's what Nebuchadnezzar foresaw, and that's what indeed is happening before Daniel's eyes, God's promises in these visions are coming to fulfillment. And because this is happening, it sends Daniel back to the Word of God. He goes back to the Word of God, and if we read in in Daniel chapter 9, it might look like this is the first time that Daniel goes and reads the prophet. Jeremiah like he's never opened this before and he's kind of seeing for the first time. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case because Jeremiah's prophecy what he set, speaks about although it is primarily a word against uh the land of Judah, against the city of Jerusalem, warning them against their sin and saying that God's going to send judgment Although that's part of it, we heard today in the Scripture reading that part of Jeremiah's prophecy is explicitly given to the exiles in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, they are told how they are to live in exile. They're told, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And that's exactly what we see Daniel doing. That's what we talked about in those first six chapters of Daniel when we looked at the history of what they did. We, we noticed how Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not fully assimilated into Babylonian culture. They, they didn't just throw away the God of Israel and fully adopt everything that they were taught in Babylon, nor were they anarchists, nor did they fight against the king and and set booby traps and try to murder him and try to take over. No, they, they did what God told them to do. They lived as ambassadors, as the best citizens of that city. So, I have no doubt that Daniel already knew exactly what God had told them to do in Jeremiah, but Crucially, there were two things in Jeremiah's prophecy that God said he would do. He said, first of all, that he would punish the king of Babylon eventually. That one day the king of Babylon would be punished. And secondly, he said that he would return the exiles back to the land of Judah. Two things that God promised through the prophet Jeremiah. And... In Jeremiah, God says that both of those things would happen after 70 years of exile. That's exactly how long Daniel now has lived in exile. He's he's coming up on 70 years. And now he sees the first promise come to fulfillment. He sees the punishing of the king of Babylon and the ascendancy of Cyrus and Darius, Jeremiah 25, he says, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. The second thing that Jeremiah, or God, through Jeremiah promises to these exiles is that he's going to return them after 70 years. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, I will visit you and I will will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place For I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I will be found by you, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. In other words, Daniel has already seen the first promise fulfilled, the one in Jeremiah 25. So Daniel is now sent back into the word of God, and he says that he reads it again, Jeremiah, and again reads that the number of years that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem were 70 years. When that first promise was fulfilled, he is now awaiting the second promise, and we will see next week that what Daniel thought was going to be the fulfillment of the promise was nothing compared to what God would do to fulfill the promise. But it is then, when Daniel perceives that these promises are being fulfilled, that he prays. It is God's word and God's promises that prompts him to pray. Christian, is is that true of you? Again, I would suspect that for most of us, what prompts our prayer are our circumstances, and that's not a problem, I, I hope you are constantly in prayer over your circumstances. Uh, that's what Scripture tells us. Pray without ceasing. It's what I oftentimes fail to do. I should do that more. However, those of you who do pray often, are your prayers ever prompted by the promises found in the Word of God? Do you pray with your Bibles open, reading what God has promised, and pray according to those promises? I mean, if we just, there are thousands of promises in Scripture. If, if we just went to the end of, of Matthew, chapter 28, right before Jesus, I, mean, I, just, I just almost like lucky dipped when I looked at the promise. What, what promise can I bring up? I went to Matthew 28, the great commission. Before Christ ascends into heaven, he sends us out on our great commission. What does he say? All authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What else does he say? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Those two promises alone, if you just read those and meditated on those and let those two promises guide your prayer, how would you pray for what was going on in the world? How would it alter how you pray for what's going on in your life? Sinclair Ferguson says this, the secret of prayer is that we should ask in accordance with God's will. The prayer of faith Asks in unwavering trust for what God has already promised to do. So Daniel finds himself sitting in between two promises of God. How amazing would that have been to actually witness the promises of God coming true before your very eyes. Now it's amazing, I think, first of all, that Daniel prayed, but But what's even more interesting to me is not so much that Daniel prayed, but what he prayed. Because you would think that that if he knows that God's promises to send the exiles back are about to be fulfilled, his prayer would be a prayer of thanksgiving. And there would be nothing wrong with that. We should thank God more. But instead, what we find is that his prayer is a prayer of repentance, why? Why? If we, if we begin looking at verses three and four, we, we see he, he uh, adopts this, this, uh, this position of, of repentance with sackcloth and, and ashes and, and begins to pour out his heart and pour out his sin. Why? Why is he doing this? A- awaiting this great, amazing return. Is Daniel just a depressing person? No. No. Now he's not just morose. It's because Daniel knows his Bible. Daniel knows what God has said. He knows that something else must happen first. In Jeremiah 29, God not only gives instructions to the exiles of how they are to live, he not only promises that he's going to return them after 70 years, but he says something else. Sandwiched, They're in between God's promises to bring the exiles back to the land of Judah and give them future and a hope. God says he will do this in response to the prayers of his people. Jeremiah 29, you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and then I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You see, this isn't the only time that God says this in his word. Daniel, you notice, in his prayer speaks of the covenant that God made with Moses. He goes all the way back to the law. In Leviticus 26, God says this all the way back in Leviticus 26. Think about this. When when, this is before the Israelites enter the promised land. This is before all of the kings and all of the sin and all of the treachery that we read about in First and Second Kings that leads to the exile. Before all of that goes wrong, in Leviticus 26, God says this, if you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. I will strike you sevenfold for your sins. I will lay waste to your cities. Your sanctuaries will be desolate. I will scatter you among the nations, and your land will be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. But if my people confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and in walking contrary to me, if their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and with Abraham, and I will remember their land. When the temple was dedicated, Solomon. Solomon says this in a prayer to God. If your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and you give them to an enemy, and they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and they repent, and they plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned, we have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with their heart and with their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them to captive, and if they pray toward their land which you give them which you gave to their fathers, if they pray toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven. Hear their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. Remember, in Daniel chapter six, when Darius was ruling and Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, why was he thrown into the lion's den at this time when he was 80 years old? It's because He prayed. He prayed three times a day, and he prayed towards the city of Jerusalem. He was following what God had said. He knew what was said by Solomon in the dedication to the temple. He knew what was said in Leviticus 26. He knew his Bible. And Daniel realizes this. He says it in verse 13 of our passage today. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us, God. Yet, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Daniel sees it. We haven't repented. I I don't know what they've been doing. Probably lamenting, probably hating what happened to them, but Daniel says, we have not repented And Daniel begins to repent, and in fact, he doesn't stop repenting, and that's why he's thrown into the lion's den, because he does it, and he does it, and he does it, and he will not stop, even when threatened. He was reading Jeremiah, but he was also reading Leviticus 26. That's why he brings up the law of Moses, or he remembered Leviticus 26. God promises if his people repent, if they confess their sin, then he will forgive and return them to the land. And Daniel realizes, despite all that's happened, they have not repented. And so he does. And that's another thing that struck me this week. Not just that, that Daniel prays, not, not just the, the content of what he prays, but that Daniel sees his prayer as fulfilling the promises of the sovereign Lord God. Think about that. He he knows that God has it in stone. God has written it. He has promised it that I will return you after 70 years. He knows that. The book of Daniel, as we have mentioned again and again and again, has very much centered on the sovereignty of God. That's Pretty much what the whole Bible is centered on. God is God, we are not. God is holy, we are not. God is sovereign, we are not. The whole Bible speaks of the sovereignty of God. But Daniel, Daniel, almost more than any other book it seems, just hammers home that God is sovereign over the greatest kings, kingdoms on earth. They are like nothing compared to the sovereignty of God. It is true as Daniel has pounded again and again and again that God is sovereign and that he always accomplishes his purposes. However, the Bible also says that God will employ the prayers of his people to accomplish his sovereign ends. James chapter 5, therefore confess your sins to one another. Exactly what we're talking about today. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Daniel, I think, saw his prayer as fulfilling the sovereign promises of God. He knew that God had put it in writing, that he would bring the exiles back. He had no doubt that God was going to fulfill that promise. And yet he knew that it wouldn't happen unless God's people repented of their sins and turned to him. One scholar says this, divine decree or no, the scriptures never support the idea that God's purpose will be accomplished irrespective of the prayers of his people. Daniel didn't see God's sovereign will and God's promises written in stone as excluding his actions and his prayer. He saw his prayer as integral, To God's fulfilling his sovereign plans is that what you believe Christian I mean if you're in this church especially if you're a member of this church you probably I would wager uh, hold pretty strongly to the sovereignty of God do you see what you do especially your prayers as being integral to God's sovereign plans for this world, and for your life? Do you believe that God can use your prayers to accomplish his sovereign purposes? God's sovereignty is never an excuse for prayerlessness. God's sovereignty is an excuse for even more prayer because God not only ordains the ends, he ordains the means by which he fulfills the ends, including prayer. Jesus, Jesus who knew and believed God's sovereignty better than anyone, prayed more than anyone. Paul, Paul who teaches God's sovereignty probably better than anyone, prayed and commanded us to pray. So Daniel prayed, and notice his prayer. Daniel's prayer consists of two main sections, an acknowledgement of sin and guilt, a strong acknowledgement, and then a plea for mercy. Notice, first of all, how Daniel is so specific with the sin it's one thing to repent of sin it's another thing to be very specific with it notice what he doesn't just kind of cover it all we've we've done stuff wrong lord he says look at look at all the words he we have sinned we have done wrong we have acted wickedly we have rebelled we have turned aside from your commandments we have not listened to your servants We have committed treachery against you. We have not obeyed your voice. We've transgressed your law. We have refused to obey your voice. All in all, Daniel uses 10 different Hebrew words to describe all of the things that they've done. And they're not 10 variations on describing the same thing. They're, They're 10 different words describing 10 different things. He is... He is looking around and and exhaustively, well, not even exhaustively. There are probably a million things he could have named. But you see, he, he he is listing them one after another after another. All the ways that the people of Israel have rebelled against God. Because that is what sin is. Sin is rebellion. It is rebellion against our maker. You know, I've mentioned before, but I think it's worth saying again, that think about it, our society never speaks of sin. Generally speaking, when someone is caught doing something wrong, that everyone acknowledges is wrong, we speak of it as, he made a mistake, she made a mistake. Oftentimes it's the person himself or herself saying, I made a mistake, I misspoke, I didn't lie, I misspoke. I made a mistake. If something is bad enough, like the things happening over in Israel, we'll call it evil. Sometimes it it rises to that level. But when do we hear that it's a sin? Even the things that we call evil, we don't call sin. We We never use that word because sin involves God. And we hate Him more than we hate evil deeds. We want him out of here more than we want our sin out of here. Every sin is primarily committed against God. Even if it's against other people, it is first and foremost against God. That's what C.S. Lewis mentions in Mere Christianity. He says, one of the things that we often pass over when we read the Gospels, but is so amazing to see, is that Jesus forgives sin. And he doesn't just forgive Sins that this person committed against him or that person committed against him, he'll walk up to two people he's never met before in his life and say, I forgive you the sins that you've committed against everyone else in your life. And C.S. Lewis says this he told people that their sins were forgiven. He never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned. The person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded with every sin. Repentance is acknowledging our offenses against God. First and foremost, not brushing them under the rug, not being vague, not pretending they weren't all that bad. I I have to confess something to you this morning that when I first... Uh, came here 10 years ago and, and, and was first you know, trying to make sure the service ran smoothly and trying to keep track of everything going on, uh, you know, we every week do a confession of sin. I think that's proper. I think that's right. But when we would move into the time of silent confession, I was standing up here thinking about how long it should be and how much time has passed and, and should I get going and what time is it now and how much time is going to be left for the sermon. And it wasn't for, uh, I don't know how long, I realized, why am I not confessing my own sins? What am I doing up here? This is my time as well. So now, when we go into that time of silent confession, I, I feel like I'm only beginning to speak to God about the things that I need to confess before I do realize, well, it's probably time to move on. Now, when we sin against another person, our repentance ought to be very much the same. When we sin against other people, we should be specific. We should not brush things under the rug. We shouldn't pretend that what we did isn't all that bad. One of the things that Michelle and I pounded into our kids, we still do, to this day, but we saw them have really struggle with is when they sinned against one another, forcing them and, and telling them that they had to ask for forgiveness for the specific thing that they did. That crushed them. They just wanted to say, I'm sorry, and walk away, as if what they did wasn't on purpose. And we always used to tell them, Look, if you accidentally hurt someone, you can just say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it, are you okay? But if you meant to do it, you have to say, I'm sorry for doing that thing, will you forgive me? And that was the thing that they did not want to do. We don't like doing that. We don't like admitting, I did this very thing against you, will you forgive me? That makes us look bad. It sticks our neck out. The other person can say, no, I don't. We don't like being held out there. Daniel is specific. And notice that Daniel does not exclude himself from the sinner category. You know, from all outward appearances, Daniel seems like the most righteous man other than Christ. He, he seems almost like the most righteous man in the Bible. I mean, you could, you could make an argument that you don't see Daniel commit any sin, that the only way that you know Daniel is a sinner is that he prays this prayer. Daniel was only 14 when he was hauled off to Babylon. What had he done to merit that? I mean, he came long after all of the sins of all of the kings that preceded him that led to this exile. And yet, look at at what he does. Look at how many times he speaks of us. We, we have done this. All of us have done this. All of us have done this. If anything, you would expect Daniel to be saying, Lord, why do I have to suffer for their sins? What have I done? But he doesn't. Instead, it almost seems like he considers himself the worst offender. Why? Well, because one of the marks of a true believer is not only the acknowledgement of sin, but an increasing abhorrence of your sins. That as a true believer with the Holy Spirit, you, you recognize that you, like the Apostle Paul, are the chief of sinners. All I can see from all of you is what you outwardly do. That's all I can see from anyone in the world. I see every thought that I have. I don't see that of anyone else. From a, hum- from a purely human perspective, Daniel deserved exile the least, But he would never say that about himself. He knows that he cannot stand up and say to God with a straight face, I am innocent. I've never sinned. He considers himself, like the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners. You know, I think one of the reasons we're so hesitant often to confess our sins is because we try, we tend to make God's standard of righteousness exactly where our level of righteousness goes. Like, I meet it, but all these other people don't. And and that's not what Scripture says. I mean, Daniel, if given that, he, he could have prayed something like, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these other exiles. All these other guys that have been sent into exile, they, they, they've bowed down to, to the golden statue. They, 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 they've stopped praying to, to, to you, but I haven't. I'm willing to go to the lion's den to pray to you. He, think of what he could have said. Daniel's been living in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel could have pointed to everyone in Babylon and said, God, come on. I mean, I, I'm, I sin." But have you looked around at what these Babylonians are doing? They're way worse than any of us exiles. Now, it's not that Babylon's sins are not relevant. They are. And God is going to bring judgment on Babylon. But Daniel is leaving vengeance in the hands of God. Daniel is repenting of his own sin. i think that's what jesus meant when he said before you go and help your brother or sister remove the speck from their own eye remove the log from your own i don't think he literally you know obviously means you have a log sticking out of your eye he means that you have a speck as well but from your own perspective it should take up the entire picture When we repent to another person, we ought to be sure of speaking only of our own sin. When we go to someone that we have sinned against, even if they've hurt us too, when we are repenting to them, we focus on our sin. It does no good to say, I'm sorry that I yelled at you, but what you did really angered me. That completely negates the forgiveness, the, 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 the confession. I mean, it, it, it makes them the one at fault for what you did. Daniel does not do that. He doesn't in any way uh, make excuses for his sin. Lastly, notice how Daniel makes everything ultimately not about his happiness or about the people's return, but ultimately about God's honor and glory. At the end here, from verses 16 to 19, it's all about God's name. Notice he says, God, it's your city, Jerusalem. It's your people. For your sake, the city called by your name. Delay not for your sake. Your city and your people are called by your name. Above all else, in Daniel's prayer of confession to God, he is not concerned primarily That calamity has come upon him, but because their sin has damaged God's reputation. Christian, is God's honor, is God's glory foremost in your mind? As you live, as you repent, as you confess your sin, as you look at The things that your sin causes in your own life when you go to God and repent, when you go to the other person and repent, is the foremost thing in your mind that that you have besmirched God's name, that you are called by his name, and you are acting like someone who hasn't. Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God. I realize this can seem like a depressing sermon. It's not always fun dwelling on how sinful we are and how much we need to repent. But simply put, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't speak about sin. You know, I was told by one member one time that a family member that he, he brought here to visit called me the preacher of doom and gloom. <clears throat> but you know, <laughs> the reason that I preach so much about sin is because the Bible everywhere speaks of sin. It, you, you can't get any more strongly worded about sin than Daniel chapter 9, but that's everywhere in Scripture. <clears throat> but I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. Because one of the primary ways that you can be assured that you are a believer is that you are bothered by and confess your sin. Think about it. Think about it. Who is bothered by sin? Who is aware that they are sinning against God? One old scholar from years ago, a Dutch guy, like Herman Bobbink, not him. But he says this, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is. And that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. When the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer church. Think about that. What what other gathering confesses sin? Can you imagine if you went to a Phillies game at Citizens Bank Park and before the game the announcer said, okay, we're going to sing the national anthem and then after that we're going to have a corporate confession of sin. The church is it. We are the one body on earth that recognizes that we have sinned against the holy God and that we need his forgiveness. And if we ever stopped acknowledging that, we would stop being the church. So be encouraged Ezekiel promises in Ezekiel 36 that when God cleanses us and gives us a new heart and a new spirit that two things are going to happen once we're given a new heart and the Holy Spirit is given. We will begin a new life of obedience that we never could live before and secondly, that we will be sorry when we aren't obedient. The Holy Spirit does both of those things in our hearts Confession of sin and repentance is what distinguishes you from the world around you. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't care about your sin, and you certainly wouldn't care that you are sinning against the God that you love. Christian, your sin is not a little thing. Realize afresh today that your sin was so egregious that it cost the life of the Son of God. And then, be reminded that every sin, every sin that you have committed, every sin that you are committing now, and every sin that you will commit was laid on that cross of Christ. That our Lord Jesus took the full wrath of God for them in your stead. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Daniel says, Lord, I'm coming to you not because of my own righteousness, but because of your great mercy. That's what we've found in Christ. Rejoice, Christian, as you repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this morning. So grateful for the reminder, not only that we are probably worse than we think we are, but that your grace is greater than we can imagine. Father, we pray that you would impress upon us today not only the importance of repentance, but also the importance of the knowledge that we are forgiven in Christ. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.